You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Juliet B. Shore is a former member of the Harvard Economics Department, a Guggenheim Fellowship recipient. She's the author of Born to Buy, The Overworked American, and The Overspent American. Her new novel is Plenitude. Thank you for joining me, Juliet. My pleasure. Juliet, this is a really interesting book. And what I like is right at the beginning, you suggest to us that we are much better at identifying barriers than understanding what are good goals. Yes, and I think this is particularly true in the economic conversation that has uh, dominated in this country. Um, There's so many important things that we need to do in this country, um, put people back to work, um, clean up our environment, deal with climate destabilization, enhance our communities, and have enough time for family life and so forth. But the economic conversation is always telling us we can't do this. There's not enough money. The corporations won't like it. They'll send the jobs over overseas. Um, there's a really pervasive kind of um, throwing up of obstacles uh, for you know many of the things that are you know the most important objectives that an economy should be uh, satisfying. You talk about something you call true affluence. And could you expand on that idea? Because I really like that idea as it's developed through the book. Thank you. Um, the book is called Plenitude, which you know brings up notions of affluence, of abundance, of wealth, the idea of the wealth that the, uh, the planet provides for, for humans to, to use to um, reproduce ourselves. And I contrast this with a much narrower, indeed myopic view of wealth that we get from our economic statistics, from our mainstream economic discourse, and with, in which wealth is just thought of in financial terms. So I want to expand our sense of what wealth is to include also time wealth or time affluence, to include the wealth that we get when we invest in other people and create dense and strong social connections and reciprocity among individuals, um, when we invest in our communities and our families. And I also talk in the book about creativity and autonomy and people being able to take control of their time and use it to make and do things which which uh, give them pleasure, joy, and also reproduce them. And, and I talk in the book about people who are um, tending vegetable gardens or urban poultry, beekeeping, people who are going off the grid with energy or selling their energy back to the, uh, back to the grid and feed in, using feed-in kinds of tariffs. And um, I talk in the book about a whole movement of small-scale manufacturing technologies, literally desktop machines that people are using to build all kinds of um, devices, gadgets, whether we're talking about cell phones and clocks, uh, prefabricated houses, bicycle frames, um, this whole new, uh, what's called personal fabrication technology that makes those things possible. 
that's th those are those are a variety of kinds of wealth that don't get captured in the GDP or in just thinking about wealth as you know stocks, bonds, and money. Well, one of the things I really liked about this book was the way you dealt with some of the data and the math. Y you've gone to find some statistics that. Um, have never been talked about before. We hear how America is becoming obese, but what I think is really interesting is what when you measure the weight of what we're importing. Yes. So in the second chapter of the book, I look at at our consumption from a different point of view than standard economics. In standard economics, we look from the point of view of dollar values. But from an ecological point of view, that's not, you know, what matters, what matters is the weight of the products, the toxicity, and so forth. And there's a whole new field of material economics developing, which measures the material flows of an economy and tries to understand its dynamics through those. I look both at final goods, so the weight of the products that we're buying, the furniture, the clothing, um, the electronics, and I find an explosion in the amount of this stuff that people were purchasing over the period from the late 19, uh, 1990s until just before the crash, you know, in 2007. Um, in furniture, for example, there's a 150% increase in the weight of furniture imports. Um, add on to that also increases in domestic production and and what we see was kind of an explosion of, of cheap goods. You know, much of this happened because the prices of these goods went down, people acquiring many more of them and also discarding them much more rapidly. So I, I see a kind of fashion cycle. Um, and then I also look at the data on the total materials use because what actually gets into the household in goods is a small fraction of all the materials that are used in the production of a product. Um, you know, in some cases, it's only a few percentage that actually ends up in the final product. And um, we've had a big increase in the amount of uh, what's called total material requirement for the U.S. economy over the last 25 years. What you said was, what, 352 pounds a day? Yeah. It's not, not sustainable, right. as you say. It's a hard number for people to wrap their heads around because, of course, we don't... Um, actually experience the fact that uh, reproducing the American lifestyle. Now, this includes what businesses do in government. It's not just households. I mean, a lot of that is taking place uh, in other sectors. But um, yeah, it's about 350 pounds a day. And um, that's, it, it's so much more than, than what uh, people in, in most other parts of the world use. You use a word early on in this book, and it, I think, haunts the entire book, ecocide. Uh, talk about some of the data and statistics about global warming and what's happening to our ecology, where we live, and how that impacts the economy. Yeah, well, it's I think grim. one of the most, it is grim, although the book is very upbeat because mm -hmm. it's looking at the ways in which people are changing their lifestyles uh, in ways that benefit them, but also are much lighter on the earth. So they have very light footprints, ecological footprints. But the premise of the book is that our, our economy is on a collision course with, our, with the planet, with the natural ecology. And I look at how 
economic theory has dealt with the, the natural environment, what's wrong with the way our, our economic system operates from the point of view of the environment. Uh, if you look at the data across a wide range of sort of ecosystem indicators, whether we're talking about climate and the growth of uh, greenhouse gas emissions and carbon in the atmosphere, where we're already past what many scientists now believe is a safe atmospheric concentration, and yet, you know, we, we've got... Um, We've got a growing population and we've got growing incomes in the global south, that people who need more energy mm -hmm. um, to get out of poverty. What are we going to do about that? I mean, that's the part of it that's been given the most attention. But you look at all the ecosystem indicators. Since about 1970, the growth of the size of the world economy has put tremendous pressure on ecosystems. We've had about a 30% deterioration overall in ecosystems and biodiversity since 1970, the most intense use of the planet we've ever had in history, and the biggest sort of running down of our forests, our waters. And of course, as we speak today, you know, we are witnessing what could end up being the, the biggest environmental disaster in human history, the Gulf oil um, uh, disaster. Uh, we also, if you look at ecological footprint as a whole, relative to the biocapacity of the earth, those measures show that we're at about 40% above biocapacity now. So we're running down the quality of the soils. We're running down the ocean ecosystems. Those quite dramatically. So we've really got crisis, ecological crisis, on a variety of metrics pretty much all the ones that you look at, the, the, the data on the planetary ecology are, are quite grim. Now, um, all these statistics, I, as I was reading these, I was thinking that there's a whole group of very determined and extremely well-funded people who would dispute these at, at every corner and fight. Could you talk about the impact of that? Yeah, well... On climate, of course, we've seen that, and these are, you know, primarily the energy companies, the the, the companies that are based in the fossil fuel industry, um, and conservative allies of theirs who have, for some reason, decided to turn environmentalism, which began as a very bipartisan movement back in the 1970s. After all, it was Nixon who signed a lot of the landmark environmental legislation, and there was not a partisan debate about the planet. I think, you know, people understood the planet is not a political issue. <laughs> it's, a, it's a human issue. It's a species issue. Uh, so you've got that on climate. Um, actually, on the other ecosystems uh, measures, there's not so much debate. Mm. Uh, um, I mean, there's some, but climate got particularly politicized because of the economic interests involved there. I think that's really what's at stake. But I, I think there's a lot of, I mean, and of course, among scientists, there's not, you know, there's hardly any disagreement about climate. Um, but, you know, many of the indicators that I am looking at, um, for example, from the UN, they did an, the uh, Millennium Ecosystem Assessment, which... Uh, came out a number of years ago. This is this this is the consensus among scientists from around the world. That's what get in, gets into that assessment. In the same way that the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change is a consensus report. I mean, that's thousands and thousands of scientists from around the world who um, 
agree on this. Now, one of the things that you said I thought that was really interesting was that the biggest failure of mainstream economics was the uh, unwillingness to include the ecological impact on the planet. Right. And talk so about the history of th that. The history of that is actually, it's interesting because it's very old. Mm -hmm. um, if you go back to the Industrial Revolution in Britain, part of what propelled the shift into coal, which was the second stage of the Industrial Revolution after textiles, was the deforestation in, the, in, in England because they used wood for fuel. And as their forests started getting depleted, and this is something that was happening in other parts of the world also in the 18th century, but different you know, countries dealt with it differently. So Britain turned to coal. Peak and the, wood. Peak wood, yeah. <laughs> Great term. Uh, that's what you know led to the, uh, the the second phase of the industrial revolution, the steam engine and railroads, and you know of course all the amazing stuff that happened after that. But that technological trajectory was one in which nature was treated as a free good, um, despite the fact you know which they didn't really recognize. I think in terms of the way economic theory got done. And they should have realized because, you know, it was precisely it, the peak wood, as you say, was what led them to coal, but they continued to think of nature as free. And since nature was co held in common and wasn't privatized, so it didn't have a, a price on it, it wasn't traded in the market, the atmosphere, you know, the, the air and the atmosphere are not owned and priced, our technological and industrial development proceeded in such a way that we um, began to destroy and overuse nature. Um, and that has come to a crisis point now because our population has gotten so big and the level of intensity, that material intensity that I was talking about is so large. So we're using so much of nature. Um, that it, it is no longer tenable to think about the market economy as if it existed independent of nature, which is the you know the way standard economics has treated it. Um, if you look at the textbooks, they don't they don't have the biosphere in there. They don't have the natural system in which the money economy is embedded. Now the the uh, attempt to do that. Uh, by economists started a couple of decades ago, and Herman Daly, who's the founder of Ecological Economics, who first made this point, um, you know, he's had a lot of influence, but not much inside the profession of economics, which has continued to mostly think about the, the natural system as if it were external, and that's the word they use, it's an externality. The idea that it's external to the economy shows you how distorted that thinking is. You uh, talk about... Uh landmark book, The Limits of Growth. Tell us about that book and, and the impact it had. In the 1970s, um, a group of people at MIT led by um, James Forrester, who was a systems, what they called systems dynamics modelers. So they were, he was a, actually one of the people who was one of the first inventors of the computer. Um, and he had a computer lab at MIT, and he got interested in trying to solve social problems using the models that he developed in the computing world. And he 
he hooked up with a group called the Club of Rome, which was worried about population because in the 1960s and early 70s, we had really rapid growths of population. In fact, popula- global population was growing at what's called a hyperbolic rate, which meant that the rate of increase was increasing. So, you know, if that keeps up, of course, you have a exponential growth of population that, you know, spirals out of control. Now, that's not the way things happen, actually. You know, a, a lot a lot happened to bring the population growth rate down, and and that's population trajectories have changed. You know, absolutely, you know, upside down from what they were at that time. But those folks were really worried about the combination of population and industrial production on the planet, and saw that if we kept going the way we were going. Uh, all other things equal, we were going to bump up against the limits of the planet. Now, the economists, so they wrote a book called Limits to Growth, which said we can't just do what we've been doing. We've got to get population and uh, ecological impact and production under control. It can't just keep growing exponentially in a world of finite resources. Now, everyone agrees that the resources of the earth are finite, and the economic system grows exponentially. So what's the debate about, you might ask? The economists came back and said, this is really stupid. Um, and they were pretty vicious about it. And they said, the limits to growth model fails to realize that we will have technical change and that market processes will reduce, will allow us to produce uh output, you know, have economic production, expand the economy without increasing its impact on the earth. And, you know, at the beginning, the debate was about sort of fixed finite resources, where we're going to run out of resources. But actually, pretty quickly, I think people realized the real constraints were not on the fixed resources, like oil, but the renewable resources like climate, atmospheric, uh, oceans, waters, uh, forests, and so forth, and that if you run down those, those renewable resources, you undermine the basis of life itself. So for, you know, 30 years now, there's been um, differences between the ecologists who are much more in the limits camp and understand the limits, and the economists who tended to think that we could, that, you know, the magic of the market was going to dematerialize the economy. And that's part of why I talk so much about material flows in here, to show that this dematerialization that the economists predicted hasn't been happening. Now, you're getting some of it in some places. So it's it's a possibility. Um, but the question is, are we going to get enough of it rapidly enough to pull us back from the planetary boundaries. And that's, that's a new term that's come into the discourse that a, a group of ecologists uh, published a paper in uh, the fall of 2009 uh, arguing that we have a, uh, there's a safe operating space for, for humans on the planet. You know, if we go beyond it, we're going to jeopardize our, our existence. And they argue that we've gone beyond it on three critical boundaries, um, climate being one of them and biodiversity being another. You talk about something called uh, ecological overshoot. Ecological overshoot is where the ecological footprint of, the, uh, of humans exceeds the biocapacity of the planet. And we went into ecological overshoot in about 1980, you know, just about... Uh, when this limits to growth was being written. And what it means is that every year 
we are using the earth uh, more of the earth's ecosystem capacity than than we have so we're running down the earth's capacity to reproduce these ecosystems um, and basically eating into our natural capital. And we're at about 140% of capacity now. And the largest part of that is in the climate system, where we are pumping out so much uh, carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases that the absorptive capacities of the forests and the oceans are being overwhelmed. And so the concentrations of CO2 equivalents in the atmosphere are rising. And that, that's the crux of the uh, climate destabilization that's going on. It's like living off your savings. Exactly. And, you know, it gets harder and harder. As your savings gets lower, it's um, the income that it produces goes down. Now, working from the, the idea of, of the limits of growth, you talk about two kinds of growth extensive and intensive talk about the difference what the what do you, what do you mean by those terms intensive growth is is true growth in the sense of um, true increases in well-being and it mostly comes from true productivity growth which is when we are able to produce more for a given level of inputs so if we work smarter um, if we get new machinery and so forth, that that's what we you know would refer to as intensive growth and increases in productivity. Extensive growth is just when the system gets, when the economy gets bigger by pulling in new resources or factors, you know, what we call factors of production that were employed in other kinds of economies. So if we have, for example, a self as a subsistence economy in a poor country. When the, the capitalist market grows and it takes over that subsistence economy, it's, it's not necessarily growth. It's a shift from one kind of production to another. Um, if we used to do things uh, in our households, uh, make things for ourselves, and now we buy them on the market, you know, we used to cook our meals, now we buy prepared meals, it looks like growth in the market economy, but it's really a transfer from one kind of production to another, one that didn't get counted in the GDP because we don't count uh, when people make things for themselves as economic output. But of course it is. It's just some is marketed and some it is, is, isn't. So the, the growth of the capitalist economy has been overstated because partly it's this kind of transfers that we're talking about and partly it's the running down of natural capital where we're just eating into natural economies, if you want to think of it that way. And it, we ha we've overstated the amount of growth that we're really doing because we're not counting properly. Could you talk about, and I think you've, you've talked about this a little bit, but explain to us the material materiality paradox and what it has to do with this fall's fashion. Yeah, I coined a little phrase here called the materiality paradox. And it it relates to this big increase in material requirements that we were talking about earlier, the, the huge uh, growth of the number of things that people are buying and the speed at which they're discarding them. So I call that the fashion cycle, fast fashion cycle. And I say, you know, we've got a fashion cycle that's gone beyond apparel, which is where it started, um, to all kinds of goods that we buy and discard them more rapidly, um, wanting 
something new, wanting the latest style, being dissatisfied. Uh, you know, partly it's because the products get obsolescent quickly, and that's what the designers put in. But um, this raises a paradox because, on the one hand, if you think about the consumer system today, the consumer culture, a lot of what people are looking for is the symbolic meanings of goods. We have all our basic, you know, many of us have our basic needs met. We have enough calories. We we have enough clothing. And yet we still keep, you know, buying more and more clothing. I estimated that the average American went from buying about 34 pieces of clothing in 1991 to almost 70 uh, by... Uh, 2006, I think it is. So That's like a piece of clothing every five days or something? Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. scary. I, I remember, I've been tracking this data for a while, and I remember when we went past the 52 mark, you know, which to me was like a once-a-week mark. That was a big one. So, yeah, very rapid turnover of uh, apparel goods. So, you know, we're we're looking for something beyond functionality. And in, you know, those of us who are theorists of consumer culture, like myself, you know, we use the term symbolic meanings, that what we want from these goods is something connected to their social meanings. Um, that's why labels are so important. That's why, you know, who designed it is so important. These goods serve as status symbols. They serve as communicators of our identity and our self or personhood and so forth. And I thought it was, you know, paradoxical because um, what a lot of theorists thought is that when, when consumers got so interested in the symbolic meanings of the goods, the physical properties of them would become less important. And I think that's very true in many ways. Um, we'll pay a lot for uh, a piece of apparel if it has the label on it, uh, a lot more than an identical piece of apparel which doesn't have the label. So it's the symbolic value that we're looking for. You know, some people thought that was going to mean we would sort of, the materiality of goods could be reduced, you know, back to that material dematerialization question and whether we could get beyond the limits to growth because we didn't care about the material anymore. And the paradox is that the more we care about the symbolism, the heavier the material intensity of our consumption is because we tend to acquire and discard that much more rapidly. So we get the fast fashion cycle at a time when what we mostly care about is images um, and that, that's, that's paradoxical we are most sort of ecologically heavy when what we we care most about is image now um i could you talk about there's there's a famous uh econom economist uh thomas malthus talk about his ideas and they've been discredited but they don't seem so discreditable to me to tell the truth yeah well it's been a long-standing debate malthus was one of the classical economists in the you know we had smith ricardo marx and malthus the two were the four famous classical economists now malthus had a view that humans were going to end up very poor as a as a race as it were as a species because they would uh, be unable to check population growth, that land would become scarce and um, degraded. And so the long-term future was one of poverty because we wouldn't be able to keep our uh, reproduction in check. Now, most 
economists certainly think, and this is, the, the, the people who believed in limits to growth are called neo-Malthusians because they believe not just population, but clearly population was the thing that got them th started back in the 1960s, population growth. Um, but they think that the human demands on the planet are uh, so large that we will end up in poverty um, as a result of these growing ecological pressures. Um, so the economists said, no, it was all wrong because, first of all, we had what was called the demographic transition, which is that as we got richer, birth rates fell a lot. So you have a lot of countries which went through these, this demographic, demographic transition. And in fact, you look at you know, a number of the richer countries in the world today, they've got negative growth rates in population. And what they're worried about is not having enough people um, rather than an overpopulation problem. So the economists thought, okay, the, that's settled. You know, we, we kind of, Malthus was wrong. It's clearly been shown. We're getting richer and richer. Um, we know how to control population. But you can look at it from another point of view, which is on a global scale. We have a population that's looking more and more incompatible with ecological limits at given levels of technology, you know, using the technologies in use and also the, the levels of economic production. I mean, and I think that's really much more key, particularly for those of us in the wealthy countries. Um, our ecological footprints are, are much, much higher on a per capita basis than the people in the global south where you have more population growth. I mean, the U.S. has... Um, you know, 20 times the ecological footprint of India, for example. What you said was that you, if everybody used on this planet used at the rate of the United States, we'd need five Earths to satisfy our needs. Right. And that's from the ecological footprint, because we have a footprint of about 20 <laughs> compared to the, um, you know, about a fifth of, of that, which would be sustainable on a global level if everyone in the world had, had that level. The economists thought... Malthus had been, you know, the stake had been driven through Malthus's heart decisively. But you can step back and look now, and I think two things. One, what we already talked about, which is the ecological impacts that the population is having on the planet. And that was, in a sense, what Malthus was talking about also. He was talking about the degradation of land and the ability, inability of land to feed people. Or you can look at something, you know, much closer to, to what the, the actual Malthusian discourse was, which was hunger. We've got over a billion people on the earth today who are hungry. That is the largest number of hungry people ever in human history. So Malthus, and we've got, you know, about half the global population, which, you know, by a number of different metrics you could say is poor. So there's a way in which, although it doesn't look like it from the perspective of the wealthy countries where these economists live, on a global level, there are, there are aspects of the Malthusian predictions that look, you know, painfully true. Talk about the Cornucopians. So the Cornucopians are a group of very conservative economists who think the more people, the better. Um, that there are no limits to growth ever that the market is magical in a sense and will, I mean, they don't use that term, but the, the market can solve any problems of resource scarcity or pollution or anything. And, you know, the very counterintuitive view that if you have more people, you'll be better off because of, of course, 
you know, the ecologists are sitting there thinking the population is too high and the way they look at, you know, the dynamics of ecosystems, they look at a species and they see as, you know, when a species starts to get too big, it screws up the ecosystem and you need predators for that species to keep an ecosystem in balance. Um, what the cornucopians believe is that if you have more people, you'll have more geniuses. And if you have more geniuses, you'll have more inventions. And if you have more inventions, you'll be able to overcome the limits of nature. It's a, it's a yeah, very extreme, super pro, quote unquote, free market view. It's not held by a lot of people, but people like Bjorn Lomberg, uh, the skeptical um, environmentalist, I think is the, the title of his book, um, you know, probably the biggest critic of uh, environmental movement of the last couple of decades um, fall into that category. We're looking at an economy that has lost a, a huge number of jobs. We're looking at a world that has lost a huge percentage of its GDP in the past, of its net worth in the past few, in the past couple of years. And things look relatively grim. We've got, we've been talking about the, the ecological challenges, the climate challenges, but this book is, offers a really positive vision, and I really like that the way that you develop this. So talk about the basics of, of plenitude. How, how do we start? You start at the individual level, and I think that's the best place to start. Yeah, so the book is addressed to the combination of these ecological problems that we've been talking about and our our economic and particularly our unemployment problems. We've got 26 million people in this country who are mm -hmm. unemployed, underemployed, or marginally attached. We, lo we, we lost 8 million jobs plus another 3 million we need to keep up with the labor force growth in the country. We would have to generate half a million jobs for almost two years every month, half a million jobs. I mean, it's a, it's a number that's way bigger than what we're going to be able to do. So... The book is a, uh, it, it's about a way forward for individuals to take more control over their economic lives, to reduce their dependence on, on the market, um, because I argue the market's not necessarily going to be there for them uh, or for us. And so there are four principles of it. One is to begin to um, work less in the formal economy, and that might be because you're unemployed and you only go back on a part-time basis, or it might be because you have an overly stressful two-long-hour job and you think that you can maybe make do with a little bit less income if you could free up a little bit of your time. So the way individuals do it will vary. You might do it on a go from being a two-earner family to a one-earner family. Um, but the first the first principle of plenitude is to free up some of your time, f uh, out, get it out of the, the market and out of your paying job. And um, Our time has value. Time has value. And so the second principle of plenitude is about what do you do with that time that you free up. And it says there are a whole new series of technologies and knowledge-intensive ways of doing things, ways of meeting your basic needs, whether it's in food, in energy, in, in building a house from eco-friendly materials, in small-scale manufacturing technologies, so-called personal fabrication technologies, 
that allow you to build a whole range of things. 3D um, printers. 3D printers that can you can build clocks and toasters and cell phones and bicycle frames. And people are even building homes on the prefabricated housing using this machinery. They're, they're quite amazing. Uh, they came out of MIT, um, and when you get a whole set of them together, it's called a fab lab or a fabrication laboratory, and they're proliferating around the world. We have one in Boston, for example, for citizens to use. So um, the second principle of plenitude is uh, self-providing or self-provisioning, where people use their freed-up time to make and do things that reduces their need to buy stuff in the market. So you can grow your own vegetables, you can raise poultry, you can keep bees, you can grow mushrooms, you can put a roof garden on, you can start generating some of your own electricity and power, you can um, uh, you know, start making some of your own clothes or doing all these cool things. You can join with other people who are getting involved in these in collective ways. And as you do that, it means you have to earn less money from your job and it gives you more freedom. It allows you to be creative. It allows you to build skills. And the other thing that's happening with the people who've started doing this, because this is not just my idea. I, I started writing about this because it, it, there's a movement of people out there who are doing all of these things. The makers. Yeah, is that you start, uh, you develop the skills and expertise to begin maybe a small business uh, or some entrepreneurial activity around those forms of self-providing that you do well and are especially talented at or really love. And a number of the people that I use as examples in the book are people who did something once for themselves. Maybe they built a house using their own labor um, and cheap eco-friendly materials, and then they turned it into a career teaching other people how to do it or, or building them for other people. Or maybe you start growing vegetables and then you start selling them or you start bartering them. And that's what's happening all around the country. You know, you, you make an interest, a really fascinating observation, that back in the, around the turn of the century, we had a, a, a surplus of supply of materials out there, a surplus of nature, and a deficit of knowledge. And that in the 21st century, that's been inverted. We have a deficit of materials, and we have a surfeit of knowledge, and that people can make use of their knowledge and, and use and mine, essentially mine your own knowledge as opposed to digging a hole in the ground and hoping that oil is going to come out. Right. And I think one of the great things about the knowledge situation today is that because of the internet, we can share knowledge much more cheaply and easily and efficiently. So uh, what many of the people involved in the creating of these new technologies, new kind of green, green and clean technologies, whether it's in food, energy, small-scale manufacturing, um, or... Um, home construction, for example, those are the four areas that I talk most about, uh, they learn how to do things and then they make videos about it for the web or they put up manuals online or they make themselves available to answer questions to other people who are doing these things. So there's a kind of open source dimension to a lot of this information um, that's really fantastic because the people who are involved in these things are you know, passionate about wanting to protect the earth and restore its ecosystems. And so as they learn uh, how to do permaculture, for example, or as they learn how to you know, um, farm without using 
you know, toxic chemicals, they share that knowledge freely with others. And that spreading, that diffusing of uh, ecological knowledge, which is one of the themes of the last chapter of my book, I think is one of the most important things that we need to foster and increase. Well, one of the things that that I found uh, really heartening about this book was that you say that while green technology is good, technology is not the fix for for what we need to do, that it's more a, a change in habits, a change in, uh, in perception uh, of what what is growth. I mean, we actually have to, uh, I guess, redefine growth for ourselves. Right. Uh, one of the things we've seen over the last couple of decades is we've gotten a lot of energy-saving technology into our economy. We did it in residential energy use. We did it in cars, vehicles, you know, we, our cars get much better mileage than they used to, um, except that we started building much bigger cars, and we started having many more cars, and we started increasing our house size so much. So residential energy, which went down for a couple of decades after the oil crisis of the 1970s, started rising again because the houses got so big, and we put in so many power-hungry appliances in them, and, you know, electronics and so forth. Uh, we call it the rebound effect in the literature. So uh, you get energy efficiency, but then the gains get wiped out because you increase the scale of, of production, and then you increase the demand for energy. And that's why technology is a part of the solution. It's really central, but unless you also do something about how much demand you have, um, you won't be able to, to reduce overall ecological impact. You know, there's long been a movement called the slow food movement, and you kind of expand this out into something you call the slow spending movement, which I really like. <laughs> I actually have to adhere to the slow spending movement myself. Yeah. Well, you know, when you think about slow food was great. I mean, it's the alternative to fast food. Um, but, you know, what does it mean in other areas? Well, instead of the fast fashion cycle that I talked about, uh, when you buy a piece of apparel new, you keep it for a longer period of time before you discard it or slow travel. Uh, you know, the faster we try and get somewhere, the more carbon emissions we have. I mean, the most intensive carbon emissions for all kind of travel is from air travel. And, and after that, it's vehicles. And, you know, sort of the slower we go, the less we emit. And that's a general principle in a uh, general kind of ecological principle, you know, in general, of course, there are always exceptions, but generally doing things a slower way tends to have less eco impact. And that that's part of, you know, why I think we need to get to that slow spending. It's also a lot easier on the pocketbook, which is, you know, a big part of what many American families today are facing, shortages of cash, not wanting to go back into that debt cycle and looking for different ways to consume um, that are more consistent with, you know, savings and uh, a healthy balance sheet at the household level. Uh, I like the idea of, of Paul West, who asked the question, what would you do if your money was worth nothing? Which is a frightening and terrifying question, but I think a, a, a good one to ask. Yeah. So you have a whole transition town movement, a kind of neo-survivalist and so forth, people who are thinking ahead and thinking, you know, we can't absolutely count on everything working out in the future the way it does today. And what if the climate destabilization gets really intense? Or what if you can't buy fossil fuels anymore and we haven't shifted to another kind of energy? So they're, they are trying to do a lot more around 
bringing communities together to create new infrastructures and to create dense social capital, social connections, so that if bad stuff happens, if you have extreme weather events or you have more financial collapses of the type that we had, people will be able to meet their needs uh, even in the midst of system breakdown. It's a kind of idea of resilience, you know, creating a lot more local resilience in a world which many people, I think, rightly believe uh, that we're going to see a lot more instability, both climactic, ecological, economic, financial. Um, you, you talk about something called permaculture, which I really liked as well. Permaculture is a movement within agriculture. It's small-scale organic agriculture. But its basic principle is that you minimize the use of human labor by creating a lot more synergies among species within a a system. So um, you get your chickens to do the weeding for you. Uh, you put plants next to each other that will, you know, each one will live off the other one's waste. Um, you combine animals and plants together in ways that give you, uh, you know, pest control and maximize the productivity of the plants at the same time that you have to put a lot less backbreaking labor into it. So it's one of those knowledge-intensive sort of green technologies for meeting needs that gives you a high productivity of human labor because you've designed things with a lot of knowledge. There's a great example from, from where I live, which is Boston, and that comes from Harvard University, who shifted from, you know, a sort of nor t uh, typical uh, highly chemicalized approach to maintaining its quite extensive grounds. And they had beautiful green grass and, you know, just your typical kind of lawn care and so forth. Uh, but they were putting a lot of toxics into the soil. And uh, they decided to go with a completely organic system. So no products went into the soil. But they, they had to pull in people who had tremendous knowledge of how you maintain a healthy lawn ecosystem just through micronutrients in the soil, through the, the, um, uh, you know, the organisms, the microorganisms that were in the soil. And so now they have beautiful lawn care, uh, lawns again, um, after a transition period, they use no chemicals and fertilizers, uh, but it took a lot of brain power to do it. So that was very high high productivity human labor that went into it, not of a backbreaking sort, but of a, you know, high intellectual value. You talk about the challenges to intellectual uh, creativity and uh, the trademark and, and copyright. This is a really important point, I think, which is that we, and it, it relates back to what I talked about a few minutes ago, which was sharing new ecological knowledge. Mm -hmm. If we are going to shift to a, a new, clean, green, non-polluting production paradigm, we're going to have to learn how to produce differently because we produce in a very ecologically degrading way now. It's not just getting off fossil fuels. It's also getting off toxics. It's also getting off you know, pollution of other water pollution and soil pollution and so forth. And um, we're going to have to share out the innovations. You know, if somebody uh, comes up with an incredible in, uh, innovation in solar technology, for example, that makes it cheap to harness solar energy in a non-polluting way, we're going to want to spread that as rapidly and quickly as possible, which means that if you tied it up, uh, you know, in a, in a patent that, that meant that, you know, it became unaffordable 
to be spread rapidly throughout the globe, um, you would be, you know, jeopardizing humanity's future for that. And so we need another way to share out. Um, and what I argue is, you know, we need to move to much more open, collaborative, sharing uh, knowledge systems. And, and we can do all this without one of the things about this book that I think is most appealing is that we can do all this without brand new technologies. We can accomplish this, a life of plenitude, without o overturning our political systems. It, a lot of it just it starts at, at the individual level. Yeah, there's a lot that the individual can do. And I start the book by saying, you don't have to wait for the government. You can get started today. Here's a new way of living that will reduce your impact on the earth. Um, you know, we can't do it all without collective solutions, but we can, you know, I think do a lot more than maybe we thought we can. I've been speaking with Juliet Shore. Her new book is Plenitude. Thank you for joining me, Juliet. It's been a great pleasure. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.